Hello, friend Carm Capriato, Remarkable Results Radio is episode 489. Today, we're discussing the importance of processes and quality management. Do you really know how important these are to run a super successful shop? Well, shop owner Louis Altazan, who studied under Dr. W. Edwards Deming, who's the father of quality management, is here to stress the importance of processes and systems. And a lot of people are reluctant to make a change because they may think, well, this is not perfect. Well, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better than what you got now. And then you keep improving it. Welcome, aftermarketers, to Remarkable Results Radio. Listen to learn just one thing from today's episode on your journey to remarkable results. Hello, friend Carm Capriato, the aftermarket podcast guy and the founder and host of Remarkable Results Radio Podcast. You know, at a recent industry event, I heard from people that expressed their appreciation for the powerful content library we have, over 650-plus episodes. Now, do you know we have four different podcast formats? Do you like the short rants in the For the Record show and the single-subject panel discussion we call the Town Hall Academy? Those are just two audio workshops that will help you become a better leader and business owner. Well, we've been able to create these great formats to serve up the widest array of subjects, topics, and opinions in our beloved aftermarket. Hey, Remarkable Results Radio is proud to partner with Napa Auto Care and the 2020 Napa Expo. Join Napa in Las Vegas April 6th through 9th, 2020. Write that down, April 6th through 9th, 2020, and discover the latest news and industry information. Mark your calendar, please, and plan to be there. Enrollment has begun. Contact your Napa store or salesperson to find out more. And I hope to see you in Las Vegas at Expo 2020. And also, hey, did you see the Napa Insights Magazine for the third quarter of 2019? I'm so honored, and you'll see a featured article on yours truly. And thanks, Napa, for the great profile. Hey, my guest today is Louis Altazan, president of Agco Automotive Repair in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Lewis has had the unprecedented opportunity to study under Dr. W. Edwards Deming, the father of quality management. He's got a lot of expertise and experience to share regarding the importance of strong processes that you know we need to have to run a successful and quality shop. Lewis's extensive knowledge regarding the processes and systems of quality management puts him at the top of our list regarding the topic, a topic that I'm sure you'll enjoy and will make you thirsty for more. Lewis shares with you how to become a continuous improvement leader. Find the show notes at remarkableresults.biz slash E489. And if you can't describe what you're doing as a process, well, then you don't know what you're doing. A warm welcome to Lewis Altazan from Agco Auto in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Hello there, Lewis. Hi, Carm. How are you this morning? I'm great. Well, we, we got together from a recommendation of a friend of mine, Matt Fonslow, who mm-hmm. ha- followed you in IATN and totally uh, loves the uh, area that you are just fascinated with and always have been your whole life, and that would be total quality management, continuous improvement. And it all came, as you and I spoke, from W. Edwards Deming, who you've met and known. Yeah, yeah I studied with Dr. Deming for eight years. So I can't imagine the kind of processes that you have going in your shop. I mean, you you guys are like a, some like a well-oiled machine on how how it works. Eh? <laughs> well, 
we do things maybe just a little bit different than the way the norm is done. When I got into the automotive repair business, I approached it much the same as everyone else did. And I started looking for benchmarks, people who are doing better than myself. And as I looked around, I just really didn't find exactly what I was looking for. And after many, many, many years, maybe 20 years of stumbling around and trying different things, I decided just to maybe try a totally different approach, which is what we did. And so our form of management more closely relates to a manufacturing model than it would say to a service model. When you hire new technicians and come in to that kind of model, the processes, mm-hmm. is it is it a long learning curve or do they or do they say, Wow, this makes so much sense? Corm, I've been able to retain my technicians for a long, long period of time. My oldest guy's been moving over thirty years, next one's twenty nine years, next one's twenty seven and on and on. But so it's been a while since I've hired anyone, but technicians seem to get it. They get it a lot more than management or owners get it. Uh, when you explain it to it, most technicians' mind is very logical, I find, uh, and they're looking for answers anyway. That's, that's what they do, and they get it a lot faster than management. I know when I used to post on IETN, most of the accolades I would get were from techs, and most of the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the resistance I would get were from shop owners. <laughs> <laughs> that goes back to when... Uh, it was Dr. Deming, I do believe, right? And when he went to Japan and they fell in love with him because they were a war-torn, ravaged company back then. And, right. You know, and the story goes is that no one from the U.S. wanted to hear him because we were all in prosperity mode back then. Well, we were. Yeah. And, and then it took many, many years for the whole TQM movement to really hit the U.S., it did, and it never really caught on. What most managers in the U.S. want to do is more or less a cafeteria plan. They'll look at the program, and they'll say, well, that's that's good, that's good. No, that not so much. For instance, they'll embrace maybe the statistical process control portion of it because they can understand that. But then when it gets to the part about not rating and ranking your employees, well, that, that's totally out. No. And it just doesn't work that way. Got it. It's, a, it's an entire philosophy. Uh, Doc Deming had 14 points that he uh, made that you pretty much have to practice all 14 of them from the work. So if you spent much time at all with shop owners um, showing him this pathway that you were on, and do some of them at the end of the day realize this is pretty good and pretty powerful? You know, I have had a, a limited number. Uh, one is a shop owner in Baton Rouge gentleman who used to work for me years ago uh, decided he wanted to go off on his own. So I told him I'd be more than happy to. And we studied together. I taught him. He already knew quite a bit about the program just from being with me. He has a very, very successful business now uh, doing similar to work to what we do. And uh, we refer clients back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, another was a very good friend of mine in another town, which started his business out following the philosophy. Uh, unfortunately, he's passed away now, but uh, his business was quite successful up until the point uh, where he got sick. So you weren't able to take this and make this a contagious process improvement thing. I mean, were you ever said, hey, uh, Lewis, come out and speak to uh, our 20 group? I have spoke to a number of groups, really more outside of the automotive repair business. Uh, We won a total quality management award uh, in Baton Rouge back, I think, 1994. And part of that receiving the award was to speak to a lot of the uh, community businesses. And most of the businesses that I did speak with, they got it and they really like it. Some of them have even kept in touch with me today. But in the automotive 
industry, no, not so much. So we're in this mode of our industry that we're kind of in a growth mode. Many of the single shop owners are looking to to grow. There's a consolidation movement going on in our entire industry and succession Mm -hmm. planning. Never been more important than ever, Lewis, to have um, processes in play that work and that are constantly improving. It's almost like the time for TQM and Dr. Deming stuff is right now. Yeah, well, it's always a time, Carm. When times are good, Deming works very well. But when times are bad, he works even better. Got it. Uh, because you'll be a, a much more powerful country company. You can, you can survive the lean times so much better. And I think what has more or less fall the automotive repair business that it does well in spite of itself. It's a pretty lucrative business. And that's one thing that attracted me to it. If you, if you look around a great deal, you'll see that for the most part, even terribly run shops make a living and well-run shops do pretty well. So you, you studied under Dr. Deming for, I think you said eight years and yes, you sir. started to make improvements inside of your business. What, what, what were some of the outcomes that would, that, that are, that my listener could relate to? One thing uh, that I realized, because we were also in a growth mode, we were doing what I thought was very well at the time. It's just, it was costing us a tremendous amount of money to do what we were doing. So the profits really weren't, I couldn't even imagine the kinds of profits we turn now routinely in those days without overpricing yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the price you charge is, is sort of a relative term because people will pay almost any price as long as they're getting results they want. But if you are not right priced, what you will find is that people will visit you once and then they don't tend to come back. Because if a guy is in a bind and you're the guy who can fix his car, he'll come to you, he'll pay you whatever you want. But when he has a less critical job to be done, then he's going to go find someone else. And that's what you hear shop owners talking about, well, customers are not loyal. Well, customers really don't owe you any loyalty. They don't owe you anything other than paying the bill. And if you're not charging enough to make a living, that's your fault, not the customers. Uh, you know, shops that complain about customers who shop around or customers who only come to them for certain things and all that, that's where the difference is between making a whole lot of money and getting by or, or like you alluded to, having a job. You know, I think about right now what's going through my mind is efficiency, and I also think of comebacks. And and so many that I've interviewed in the past that when we have talked about comebacks and efficiency talk about the processes are lean and they're mean and they're constantly improving and they've figured it out. And yes. so whatever money that you're going to charge so that you could earn a great living gets mm-hmm. shored up, if you will, by great processes. Well, that's true. And what happens to so many shops, they don't charge enough for the service they render. But what they do is they inflate the price of parts considerably. And they use that more or less as a cover up to make the profit. And what's happening now, everybody knows what everything costs. I can pop online. I can find the same exact part from the same manufacturer, 25% cheaper uh, than you're selling it or 50% or whatever the number. And People may do it. Some people will do it. Some people won't. Some people are going to shop around. And that's where you hear all the complaints about people want to bring their own parts and people want to do this, that, and the other. And you really you don't have to get mad when people want to do that. You just have to understand. It's just psychology. People are looking for their overall lowest cost. Now, if you can sell parts at a much more reasonable price, I'm not saying give them away for free. We sell parts at what we call our true costs. 
that covers our full cost of, of the part, handling it, processing it, returning the cores and all that. But we really don't see parts as a profit center. We charge enough labor to our services, I call it, uh, to cover our entire model. Well, there was a piece of low-hanging fruit that you just offered me because uh, I've been talking an awful lot about that lately. And Mm -hmm. and I am very interested in having an offline conversation with you, Lewis. Mm -hmm. So the team, the team's behind you in constantly looking for ways to improve? Yeah, that's more or less every person there's job. Uh, is, is part of your job description. One of the ways that we, I don't want to say reward, but uh, when we have folks that come in, everybody has projects they would like to work on because it's fun. And they get paid their full wages when they're working on these projects. So we have a listing that we'll keep. And when time allows, I'll say, you know, Brian, you've been interested in this project. Tell me a little bit more about it. We'll review it. And if it's not very much money, then we'll just say, yeah, why don't you go ahead and do that? If it's considerable amount of resources, then we'll meet as a group and everybody will kind of take a look at it and decide if we want to re- invest the resources. Then he'll take over that particular project and he'll bring it to us when it's ready to present and then everybody reviews it again and then we'll implement it. We, you do that on a matter of what's called plan, do, study, act. Uh, that's where you formulate the plan, you implement it on a very limited scale, and then you study the results. Now, when you study results, you're going to learn one of a number of things. Either you can say, this doesn't work at all. Okay, now we learn one thing. It doesn't work. So we've moved up. Or we'll say, looks like it could work, but needs some tweaking. And we could do that. Or you can say, hey, this works great. Can we implement it on a larger scale? And so that's the way the process. And you'll start off again with Plan, Do, Study, Act. So plan, do, study, act. Uh, th- mm-hmm. this, is, this is the big takeaway right here, at least for, for me right now. And what you're saying is that every process, or as you say, project, mm-hmm. would, should have that kind of structure behind it. Yes. Uh, what happens, Carm, if you'll notice, like uh, an example of a business that really doesn't work very well might be the United States government, where they'll come in, they'll study a problem, they'll see a problem. So they've got the plan. They implement the plan, but no one ever studies it to see if they got the results they intended, and it never goes away. It just continues on forever. And the same thing can happen in business, particularly if management is pushing the programs and they kind of fall in love with them. You know, management may come up with an idea, implement it, but nobody ever studies, is this really having the intended consequences? Okay, you're the TQM expert here and the Deming guy. And when you say plan, do, study, and act, Mm-hmm. You're really saying don't overstudy it. If you plan to do something, go ahead and do it, and then yeah, let's, on small scale. Small scale, okay. Small it, scale. It, you, you don't want to bet the, the far future of the company on it naturally, but you can implement it on a small scale. And a lot of people are reluctant to make a change because they may think, "Well, this is not perfect." Well, it doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be better than what you got now. So, and then you keep improving it. So don't overanalyze anything. What you're saying is you can't, you can't really never figure out if it's going to work unless you at least get started. A lot of times that's true. Yes. You, uh, you can get paralysis by analysis where you you just study, 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 study. And again, you never act. It's Carm here with news about the new Napa Smart Sign, previously known as the digital menu board. I like to think of it like a silent salesman on a TV near your service desk. It's an easy way for you to increase customer awareness of your current promotions and educate them about needed repairs and service. In other words, having a Napa Smart Sign will supercharge your sales. Napa Auto Care tests have shown one out of five consumers ask for a repair or service they've seen on the board. 
and targeted promotions resulted in double-digit increases. One auto care shop owner said, I've received amazing feedback. Customers are actually asking for additional services they see on the screen. Now that's what I call getting results. You choose the content for your Napa Smart Sign from a library of auto care services and repair topics. The Smart Sign comes with preloaded content. Just about anything you can think of is available from alternators and alignment to wiper blades and wheel bearings. There are over 150 topics to choose from. Templates can be customized with your location branding for a professional look. Some of the options include customer reviews from Kukui, Demand Force, or MechanicNet, live news, and even the weather. Whatever content you choose, it's preloaded for you. Just as important, it's easy to change your services, prices, and video content anytime you'd like. Plus, the latest Napa national promotions are downloaded to you automatically. Of course, having a Napa smart sign gives your auto care center a professional, state-of-the-art look and feel that tells customers, I'm on top of my game. Now, that builds trust, which means recommendations are accepted more readily and customers spend more. Find out more about what Napa Smart Sign can do for your business. Talk with your servicing Napa store owner to find out more about the Smart Sign and all the other reasons to become part of the Napa Auto Care family, the largest network of independent repair shops in the country. And I love what you just said. You know, an example, you say you give one of your guys a project. Can you give me an idea of what a project could have been in the last couple of years? Well, one thing we did, uh, we noticed that the shop was not as clean as we'd like it to be. And one of the reasons is because a lot of stuff was laying on the floors, parts off of cars, uh, things that really don't have a place to go. So we decided, you know, if we were to build closets inside of our shop, then we'd have a place to put these things. We could organize them with shelves. They would stay organized. Parts wouldn't get lost. We wouldn't be tripping over them. So Brian brought this to my attention. Uh, he says, I've got an idea. Try so it sounds like a great idea. Why don't we try it in your area first? So we built one closet. Didn't break us. We had a carpenter come in, build this thing. We tweaked it three or four times to get it the way he wants it, but he absolutely fell in love with it. Well, at this point, everybody else's shop is kind of looking at, well, when am I going to get mine? So now you don't have to announce to the shop, we're going to do this and kind of force it on. Everybody kind of starts getting interested in it. Well, I'd like mine to be like such and such and such. Okay, well, let's try that and see how it works. And again, you study it. Did it have the intended consequence? Well, yeah, the shop's about 30% cleaner than it was before. So can we improve this? Or can we make it bigger? Well, we did make it bigger. We built workbenches and all into the cabinet system to where it's all one system, all fabricated into the walls. We have drawers in the walls. We have all these things where there's a place for things. So if you take a part off of a car, you don't just leave it laid on the floor. You put it in the closet part. You know, I mean, obviously, if you just take it off and put it right back on, you would, we've got a cart. You keep it on until you put it back on. But jobs that drag out for more than a number of hours or a number of days in many cases. In the case of a brake job, you're taking off some old rotors and old pads, maybe even a Correct. caliper. Is that going to go in the junk bin or in the closet? Well, those would work on a, we work on a cart, uh, just a roll around cart. All right. And all the parts would go on the cart until the job was completed. Then the cart would be rolled to the core storage area. Whatever's getting recycled goes, cores goes there. The other mm-hmm. one goes out to recycle as far as the rotors and all uh, that are being disposed of. Wow. H- how lean you guys must be as far as less steps and you're not falling over stuff. Yes. Well, it, it's very nice. We've got the, the floor of the shop is painted white. And we've got 
a huge amount of lighting. Uh, we originally built the building. We had neon line. We came back, upgraded that to LED lighting. We also have skylights. I don't remember the exact candle power that we achieved at work height. I had measured that at one time. And, and it's, it's up to about where an office or a library would be, uh, that amount of light in the shop. So if you drop something, it's immediately, obviously, where it went. You don't have to go look for it. You know, the white floor. White floors. Yes. And if you really want to, our uh, guys all wear white shirts. I'm just blown away. <laughs> well, our, our, our shop uniform is black trousers with a white shirt. Wow. And you might say, why a white shirt? Well, because number one, it's a little more difficult to keep a white shirt clean in the shop. So it makes you think about cleanliness all the time. And the guys wear surgical gloves when they're working. The gloves get dirty, peel them off, throw them away, another pair on. So their hands are really never dirty. The shirts stay clean. If a shirt were to get soiled, they just change it out. We keep extra shirts there. And I, I get a lot of problems from other shop owners about that. And they say, well, we wear a dark blue because I say, no, they get just as dirty. A blue shirt gets as dirty as a white shirt. It just doesn't show it. I don't want to hide the problem. I want to solve the problem. Listen to this guy. I mean, these are just great ideas. And it all came from your studying of, uh, from Dr. Deming, the father of quality evolution. I think that's, mm-hmm. that was a, a moniker that he had. You know, take me back to those eight years that you spent with him. And were you like, just can't get, wait to get back and, and, and start this <laughs> stuff? I mean, give me, give me a, a few minutes on it. Well, I didn't have a student loan, so I still had to work. But whenever Deming was uh, in an area anywhere around me, I would travel to where he was uh, as far as his lecture series. And then I would attend university classes uh, when I needed it. And I had another young man working for me at that time who could run the front. So I could take off for a matter of days, sometimes a week at a time. But again, I was still operating a, a business. And I'm more or less bootstrapped. I didn't go and borrow a bunch of money to do this. And the, the good side of that is when you get through, you don't have a big debt on your head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you had to be then fascinated with total quality management just to, to follow this guy. Well, it just made total sense to me. I had studied several other systems and several other people over the years, and they just never seemed to hold water. Their philosophies would fall apart on some level. Deming is the first thing I ever came across that just fit right across the board. Uh, There's nothing in it that didn't work for me. Do you have everything written down in manuals? At one time we did, uh, Carm. Nowadays we write down a lot less simply because everybody's on board. That's probably not a bad idea when you're getting started. Uh, I've got binders with slides and presentations and things that we used to use training our own people in-house. But at this point, it really becomes more or less unnecessary. It's kind of like meetings. Uh, we really don't have meetings. I, I don't like the idea of me. I always felt that a meeting is sort of a, a monument to the ego of the guy who calls a meeting and horrible experience for everybody else who's forced to attend. Rather than just walk over and talk to the people. Uh, if, it, if you have to dress more than one or two, you might get everybody together for a few minutes standing up discuss what you need to discuss and move on. Yeah, a toolbox meeting. But you're right. You can have death by meetings just to have meetings. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if every meeting is, is a timeline and a purpose, right. uh, I still believe that they're valuable because you, you're actually, meetings should be about listening to your people. And right. every, occasionally you have an agenda to, to put out. But I'm a brand new tech. One of your 30-year 30 30 guys says, hey, Lewis, it's been great. Uh, I'm out of here. I'm going to retire. You know, me and mm-hmm. the wife, we're going to we're gonna sell a house and 
You right. know, we're going to drive around the country. So you lose somebody. A new person comes in because you're so, um, if you will, process driven. Mm-hmm. Is it the culture of the you know, the process driven that I could come into your place and assimilate in a very short amount of time, how to do everything. I think anyone who wants to and can fit into the process, what we do, Carm, is we try to always have a list of people who are potential employees. Okay. Even though we explain to them, we may not be hiring for the next five to 10 years. Uh, but when we meet people, when I meet people that I think would be a good match for me, make contact with them, interview them. We'll go ahead and put their name in a file. Now, at that point, we don't forget about them. We invite them to all our functions. When we have in-house training, we invite them, even though they're working somewhere else at the time. And we start to bring them into our culture slowly. Uh, it, it may take four to five years before an opening will become available. Got it. But that way, I've got a ready list of people who are probably going to fit into the culture. Once you come in, I'll know pretty quickly uh, whether you're going to work out. And some people just don't. Uh, Some people have been in the standard system, flat rate, so long, they're just not ever going to trust anybody. I mean, they've been messed over so many times, they're just not ever going to buy in. Uh, But most people do. Some it takes longer, some not as much. But uh, generally, most people do. I remember I had a flat rate tech that I really wanted. Uh, but he'd been working flat rate all his life. He was very, very distrustful of our salary system. And so what I told him was, well, I'll tell you what, you bring the W-2 forms for the last two years. And what I'm going to do is pay you the average of what you made for the last two years plus 10% to start. We'll review you from there and we'll move you up from there. But I will never move you down. So that sort of got his attention. And he's still with me. So, so you're building a bench at, at all times. And I love the strategy of bringing, bringing the bench in mm-hmm. to anything that's going on at the shop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anything we have, we have meetings, uh, Christmas party, whatever we have, they all get invited. Wow. Wow. If I'm ever down there in Baton Rouge, <laughs> I know where to go for a Christmas party. There you go. How long have you been in business? Since 1974. Wow. That's a long time. It is a long 40, time. It's like a 45 years. Yeah. Mm-mm, and I did five years for other people before that. So <laughs> <laughs> very good. Who's running the shop right now? My daughter, my youngest daughter. Your youngest daughter. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? <laughs> well, I could see a time where I was no longer going to want to do this. And she coincidentally just needed a job. So I brought her in. And like I told her, I said, you're going to start out in the file room. And when you master that, we'll move you to the next thing. It took about seven or eight years for her to accumulate all the skills she needed, but uh, she never looked back. How many hours do you put in a week? Her or me? No, you. Uh, Generally, I will go in Monday mornings and I'll work depending. Sometimes I'll get out of there at three in the afternoon on Monday. And sometimes I'll work all day Monday, but generally one day a week. One day a week. Yeah. And that's just to go visit my old customers. Oh, that's cool. That's nice. So you you love to hang around the shop because you can't take the shop out of the guy, right? <laughs> okay. So give a, let, let's give some advice to our listener um, about how to be a continual improvement leader. Carm, what I find, there's four things that you need to know to really run a successful business. You don't have to be an expert on any one of them. 
But you need to at least have a basic familiarity with it. One is a theory of a system. How does a system work? How do you organize a system? Number two is a theory of statistics, how statistics work, what numbers mean. Number three is a knowledge of psychology, how people think, why they think that way. And number four is a theory of knowledge. How do we know the things we know? Because so many times people assume they know things. And that's one problem with bringing a guy in who's already trained is he knows a lot of stuff, but a lot of it is not so. And it's much harder to get that out of him than it is maybe just training right from the beginning. Because a man who does not know will generally ask questions and he'll try to figure it out, try to learn. But a man who thinks he knows will continue to do it the way he thinks he knows is right, even though it's possibly wrong or not the best way to do it. This sounds fascinating to me. Systems, stats, psychology, and knowledge. Yeah. Those four things, you don't have to be, you don't have to have a PhD in psychology, but you have to have at least a working knowledge of how it works, how people think, why they think the way they think, uh, how to separate emotions from business. I find that's a problem a lot of shops seem to have where they'll get mad about something. And it's just business. It's nothing to get mad about. People get mad at customers because they do things they don't understand rather than seeing this is possibly an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Tell me why stats are so important. I mean, are you just basically saying, God, Carmen, you got to have numbers. You got to know where you're going. You do, but you have to understand statistics is much, much, much more than accounting. Uh, Accounting is important, but the only thing accounting can do for you is you can look at a business and see why it failed. In other words, after your business fails, you can look at the numbers and say, okay, this is why I went out of business. But it's just too little too late. Running a business from a profit and loss and a balance sheet is like trying to drive your car looking in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. You're looking at an image of what's already happened. You need to be way ahead of that. You need to be real time. That's where you're getting into knowing your exact costs so that every job, has the profit built into it when it's written. Now, if every job has the proper profit built into it when it's written and you sell enough of them where everybody is busy all the time, the profit's going to take care of itself. You really don't have to worry about all the other so much. Got it. Fascinating. You're, you're happy that you're semi-retired? Uh, you, you, you sound like, you know, you, you should be on the speaking circuit right now. <laughs> well, I'm kind of a type A personality, but yeah, I'm very, very happy. I have time to do things I've never had time to do in my life. Uh, I've owned this business for, like you said, 44, 45 years. I've got other businesses that I've run and bought, sold. Okay. So I've stayed very, very busy all my life. I really never had a lot of time for a social life, which is what I do a lot more of now. I'm pretty active in the community in New Orleans, a uh, member of the Historical Society. Uh, I do a lot of work with that. Uh, we have a lot of friends down. We have people over. We entertain a lot. So okay. just kind of life 2.0. Okay. Oh, I love it. Yeah, you're doing things <laughs> right now, Lewis, that you just it never, you just dedicated your heart and soul to the business, right? Pretty much. And you live in uh, Nolens versus Correct. where the business is in, is in Baton Rouge. That's right. Interesting. Did you always live in Nolens? No, I've moved here about 10 years ago. I guess about Three or four years before I retired, I moved here, but I would just come down on weekends. Uh, but yeah, we got a really nice place in the French Quarter. So oh. it's, it's fun. I just, uh, I love the French Quarter. Oh my God. Uh, I that, like the history, the music, the people, the uh, cuisine. Are you kidding me? It's one of my favorite places. Mm-hmm. Well, now I know, now I know who now to you go know where visit. to come. <laughs> I do, I do, Lewis. Oh. Come drink, drink margaritas on our balcony. <laughs> well, really? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> I'll be here. <laughs> I bet you will. I had a blast. And, and, and frankly, I think this was the kind of episode that uh, uh, was a knowledge-based episode for, uh, for our listener. And I really would hope that they would take some of your great wisdom and do something with it. Well, great. I mean, I, if I can help anybody, I'm always glad to do it. Louis Altazan. Agco Auto in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, student of Dr. Edwards Deming. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Colin. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time, 